I love the book of Acts. If you want a page turner in the Bible, read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about what happened after Jesus' resurrection when people who had followed Jesus and knew of Jesus were trying to make sense of what it all meant now in the days and weeks and months and years after Jesus' resurrection. It was not a thing. Christianity wasn't a thing. And it's hard for us to conceive of that because we've all known it as a thing. Perhaps it's easiest if you imagine that you have a club and all of a sudden you hear that there's another club the same as you down the street and you wonder, well, how are they a club? I mean, who told them about what a club is, this club that I have? And what words do they say when they get together? And how do they organize themselves? And they are saying some of the same things that we're saying, but are we really saying the same thing? And how do we know if we're saying the same thing? I mean, if you can feel the unrest in that, then you have a sense of the book of Acts, of what happened in the days and weeks and months and years following Jesus' resurrection. Christianity wasn't a thing. People were known as people of the way. And so it was all about the movement of God, which is what we hear throughout the whole Bible. God is always on the move. And Acts reveals the Holy Spirit's action in the community of people who were committed to following Jesus. One thing that I can liken it to is our experience here with global philanthropy leaders. Now you've heard about global philanthropy leaders because we've promoted it and shared it with you in all kinds of different ways and we have been doing it now for two solid years, but I don't know if you know that that never existed until here. It was born here. And that's the best way I can think to describe it. Rich Stein and I first met about four years ago um, at a diocesan event. We both were in different committees, and it, we were, it was lunchtime, and all the committees came together for lunch, and I just happened to be sitting next to Rich, and we were just making small talk, and they didn't go to church here. And I was just asking, you know, just talking about things we like or do or whatever, and Rich told me about this microloan thing that he does and with Kiva and that microloans, they're like about $25. And I thought, wow, $25, that's what young people can imagine. That's a familiar amount of money to teenagers. I mean, that's what you make babysitting on a bad night. So we get, began to talk about, wow, what if, what if kids learned how to do this? What if teenagers learned how to do this? And we exchanged information, and we emailed back and forth, and I said to Jane, come and talk and think about this with us. And we started having meetings. We didn't even meet here at the church when we first started meeting, just kind of thinking about what this thing was. And then all of a sudden, it started to take shape, and it was Jane that came up with the name Global Philanthropy Leaders. And we decided, I think mostly from Jane's leadership, to do it once a month. And would they bring their computers? Yes, no. And what would it look like? And what would Rich say? And all of this kind of stuff. And it was just born. Global Philanthropies was born here at St. Stephen's because Jane and Rich and I sat down together and had conversations. But it's taken off. And as the year ended last year, Rich has a friend who goes to church at St. John's in Bridgeport. And he said, oh, I want to do that here. And Rich was like, oh, uh, Okay. And I was talking to some people, just making small talk at St. Luke's Darien, waiting for some other people to show up and talked about global philanthropy leaders. And they said, oh, we want to do that here. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. But what is it that we're giving you? We don't even know what we have. We just, this is what we did and what we do. And 
So maybe we can talk about how you do in this too. And it's been born again in new places. And from that, now we have a grant to help five other churches get started on this thing that we're not even sure what it is. But people are saying to us, we want to do that too. And we're like, well, we don't even know what the that is. I mean, we just talk and we do this and we do that. And it it's, keeps being born. Rich and I have an appointment later this week to talk to a leader of a national organization who's putting together a conference in February because they want to entertain doing, have, offering global philanthropy leaders there. And the reason we're even having this conversation is because of somebody who knows about it who said to that guy that they know really well, you should check out Global Philanthropy Leaders. It's happening at St. Stephen's Richfield. And we say, well, what is this that we have? And they say, do you have a tear sheet? And we're like, uh, maybe. We know we don't have a binder. And we don't have a binder because I'm certain that if we have a binder, it'll kill it. If we make lesson plans and we put in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, this first, second that, last this, the whole thing will collapse in on itself. People will forget to be in relationship with one another and consider the resources that are in their midst and start to dialogue and notice what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of them. They'll just look at the binder. We don't have a binder. It's only through our ongoing conversation that the next phase of it continues to be born and We've had meetings already, Jane and Rich and I, about what it looks like in year three. My friends, there is no binder for being the church. It might be hard for us to conceive because we all know Christendom and we were raised in Christendom. It's several hundreds of years old. It's all that we've ever known the church to be. But in the book of Acts, there was no binder. And so here is Paul. He gets this vision that they should go to Macedonia. And as you know, Paul's life has been radically changed by visions. And they have been good things to follow. And so he says to people, we're to go to Macedonia. And they say, okay. And they get in the boat and they go across the water and they get to the shore side. Well, guess what? The guy that was in their vision was not standing at the port uh, ready to wave them down. There wasn't anybody there. And so they travel from town to town to town. They end up in a town that's a Roman colony, which is a good thing because Paul's a Roman citizen, so at least they have some security there. And they're sitting around for a couple days, and they say, well, why don't we go out to the gate, outside the gate? We think there might be a prayer group, that uh, somebody praying out there. Let's go out there and see what happens. Folks, can you imagine that? None of us sits out on a trip without knowing where we're landing and what we'll do when we get there. Not a single one of us does that. This pushes me way outside of my comfort zone. But here it is that it's outside the gate that they seek to see what God is up to. Now this they have gleaned from their relationship with Jesus and from the stories of faith that they are informed by. It's outside of the gate that Jesus does God's work. Outside of the gate is where the unacceptable are and the unclean. The people who have leprosy, they're outside of the gate. The people who are bleeding, they're outside of the gate. The people who are possessed with something, who are out of their minds, they're outside of the gate. Every city has a wall around it to protect what's inside, and we instinctively do this as human beings. I thought about how handy it is for Manhattan to be covered or surrounded by water. How convenient. 
It has its own little built-in wall. But other cities who are landlocked do the same. They, like, create a big highway that goes around the city, right? Nothing will pass that. It's an unspoken barrier. It creates a, a boundary around the city that creates protection for inside the city walls. Even as our own country, we're talking about doing a border wall, it's because of security. Every single city that's surrounded by a wall, it's because of security. We want to stay safe, and what's inside is safe, and what's outside is not. It's a potential threat. Potential. Always potential. But that's where Jesus does God's work. He goes outside of the gate. He goes to the people who are beyond the margins and reaches out to them. And through touching them and engaging them, heals and transforms their lives. You might remember one occasion when Jesus heals a leper and he begs the guy, just don't tell anybody. Why? Because in the healing of that man, he is made unclean. And now he has to stay outside of the gate. He has to stay outside of the city walls for a certain amount of time before he can come back in. That's how important the walls were. And that's how radical Jesus' message is. Some of you know that I met a person last um, semester in my studies. He's actually been deceased since the mid-80s. But I got to read and study the life of Orlando Costas, a Hispanic man born in Puerto Rico. His ministry was in the mid-60s, late-60s to the mid-80s. He died about the same age I am now of stomach cancer. But his work was on the mission of the church, the mission beyond Christendom. As you recall, in mission work, um, as much as we can remember it in the last century, Jesus was brought to people who did not know him, um, along with a political system and an economic system and social structures. It was all prepackaged. Jesus came in the midst of all of that as colonizing happened around the world from different Christian countries. And it was in the mid-60s that we all started to realize the problems with this and how it was that Jesus was misunderstood and even mispromoted or misshared as he was entwined with the social and political structures of whatever country was bringing the message. That is the work that Christendom endeavored to do, and Orlando challenged that. He wrote eight books in his limited career, four of them in English, the rest in Spanish. And he was challenging the church to consider that Christ goes outside the gate. In fact, that's the title of one of his books, Christ Outside the Gate, Mission Beyond Christendom. Mission Beyond the Established Church. Christendom, that idea that we have authority and that we can dole out to people the money that they need or the programs that they need or the help that they need or the system that they need because we're right there, right there tight with the political structure. It was Constantine that started this in 300, so it's been going on for a while. And although we have watched it rapidly fall apart, it has not been falling apart only in our lifetime. Some would say that it started to unravel with the Enlightenment. When the, the mystery of faith was put beside scientific reasoning, and there was this belief that only one of them could be the dominant way of approaching the world. And religion was charged to submit to scientific reasoning. The modern era was born. 
So some would say that that's when it started to fall apart. And folks, that was way before you and me. The Enlightenment and then the Reformation, we're talking hundreds of years. So it's not our failure that has brought the, bring, the, brought the falling apart of Christendom. It's been going on way before any of us were ever born and way before this country was called the United States of America. But we're challenged to say, then what? What does it mean for us as Christian people? In Cheryl Sanders' little book, Ministry at the Margins, she talks about how Jesus goes outside of the establishment and touches those that are on the margins. The subtitle of this book is The Prophetic Mission of Women, Youth, and the Poor. And I love it that our stained glass window reminds us that God goes outside of the margins and brings all those into his new kingdom. In Cheryl Sanders' book, she outlines at the start what this thing is about, this book that she's doing, this little book here. She says, the ultimate objective of this study is to empower the church to embrace a fresh anointing to overcome evil with good by bringing evangelical faith and fervor into harness with an ethic of equality and justice for all so that the ministry, mission, and message of Christ can emerge into the third millennium with renewed authority and impact. Perhaps that's a lot to consider this morning. It may be that you're feeling a little overwhelmed by such a deep theological conversation from the pulpit on Memorial Weekend of all times. I mean, goodness, it's gorgeous out there. You probably put out your porch furniture or you're working on it. You're planning to go to a parade tomorrow and do something on the grill. Everybody's going to be doing something on the grill tomorrow. And so maybe you say, come on, Whitney. I just came here for some peace, some assurance. Well, let me give that to you. Don't be afraid. Go outside of the gate. Learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because when you do, then you'll always be comfortable. If your faith is dry and stale, go outside the gate. If your faith is heavy, go outside the gate. If your faith feels laborious, go outside the gate. When you go outside the gate, you start to see that God is at work, transforming lives, making all things new. You'll encounter people's firsthand accounts of this happening in their lives. And by hearing, you will be made new. That's what happened to Paul and the men that were with him. They went outside the gate. And they met, met, they met Lydia, who is a believer in God. And through their conversation, something radical happened. She and her whole household became baptized. And she invited their, them into her home, and their lives were transformed. That's the invitation. God's assurance that God is with us, even in our most vulnerable and difficult times. And we are called to go outside the gate. The hymn that we sang prior to the gospel... I was struck at the first service, which is a, pretty, it's a pretty heavy hymn. Did you notice? See how we trifle here below? 
fond of these earthly toys, our souls, how heavily they go, to reach eternal joys. Or the third stanza, in vain we tune our formal songs, in vain we strive to rise, hosannas languish on our tongues, and our devotion dies. Goodness gracious, we need the Holy Spirit because we don't want to live languishing and dying little deaths every day. We want a life made new, and God, who has always been on the move, calls us to come, to follow. So we don't need to be afraid. In our discomfort, God will draw us into a place of being known. And in being known, we have the strength to enter into the transforming work of God. That's what the Holy Spirit invites us to do, to follow. Amen.